This is Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 15, in which the man without fear is targeted for assassination by a mysterious criminal mastermind, and Frank Miller provides art on the old hornhead. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder, but as usual, you can call me Dave. This is the internet radio show without fear, devoted to Marvel Comics' horned Avenger, Daredevil. This week we begin a new leg in covering the Frank Miller Daredevil tales, returning to the pages of Daredevil's own title for the first time in a little over a month. I really didn't realize how much I missed the book. I mean, while I enjoyed Man Without Fear as a miniseries, it feels more at home to be in the confines of the comic itself. Even if that's from the Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen omnibus, rather than the Marvel Digital Unlimited or Essentials that I've been reading from. And it's weird to look at the omnibus and think, this is the book, the one book that I'm going to be working from for the bulk of 2014. I mean, a single book. Such an odd feeling. But, speaking of the Daredevil comic... I forgot to point out last week ahead of it, but the actual 50th anniversary of Daredevil number 1 was Tuesday, February 4th, this previous Tuesday. On that date in 1964, February 4th, the world first glimpsed that iconic cover and witnessed the birth of one of Marvel's best characters. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise a glass to 50 years of Daredevil, and I hope you'll raise one with me. Now I want to do this as synchronized as we can. So I'm going to raise it up, raise your glass, and then we'll drink on the count of three, so... Glasses raised. One, two, three, salut. Ah, I'm rocking cherry coke. I don't know what you're rocking, but hopefully it was a refreshing bit of drink. And here's to 50 more as well. Now don't worry, I'm, that's not all I'm doing for the 50th anniversary, but those plans aren't until the fall, so I can throw a great surprise party for the man without fear. In the here and now, we have a Daredevil issue to talk about, though. And it has kind of an interesting context for me. About 10 years ago, which is scary to think about as it doesn't seem that long, because I keep thinking 10 years ago is 1994. But a decade ago, my friend Odd Rob gave me a trade paperback called Marked for Death, which had, appropriately enough, a John Romita Jr. cover. That trade paperback reprints Daredevil 159 to 161 and then 164 to 165. Now, I devoured this book. I loved it. Now, I had read some of the later patches of Miller's work. I don't think I, until I read The Omnibus, I'd read it from point A to point B, but most of it involved the bullseye electric kingpin stuff that I'd read before. So stuff that Miller wrote as well as drew. So as much as I loved that book, when sitting down to plan out my coverage, the logical starting point would have been issue 158, which was Miller's first issue as a penciler. Or 168, when Miller took over writing chores and Electra came into the picture. But 158 is kind of an odd issue for starting that, because it wraps up some ongoing storylines, and then 168 would have meant not talking about the next several books, which tie very strongly into Miller's run as a writer. It helps build that foundation. And issue 159 became actually the perfect place to not only jump in, but tie the coverage back to kind of a virtual renaissance in my Daredevil fandom, and kind of tie it to that voracious reading of Daredevil back issues that follow. So for me, once I knew that starting point, everything else fell into place. I knew where my fandom was entering the picture, and this was kind of the ideal spot. 
So this week, we journey back to the second issue of Frank Miller's work on Daredevil with an awesome story featuring some nice call forwards to the Man Without Fear issue that we just finished last week. So right after this podcast promo break, we dive into Daredevil 159, Marked for Murder! never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo Akachin figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Gram. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, you're to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. And we have returned. Daredevil number 159 was cover dated July 1979, but was actually released in April of the same year. For a bit of pop culture context, this was the same month that All in the Family aired its final episode and when Nickelodeon made its debut on television as a network. Also making her debut was the Black Cat, at least in that particular identity, in Amazing Spider-Man number 194. She would be written by Kevin Smith in the Evil That Men Do miniseries. And Kevin Smith, of course, wrote Daredevil. But also, and yes, I'm going to address it. Don't worry, stop yelling at your iPod. The Black Cat also figured into Mark Wade's run on Daredevil, where Matt got to know her in more ways than in one. Also, DC was debuting what is considered to be the first comic book miniseries with the world of Krypton. As for Daredevil... Well, the book was limping along. It was bi-monthly, it kind of earned its keep, but it wasn't setting the world on fire. Gene Colan had made a return for a short stint, with uh, beginning with issue 153, and when he left, Frank Miller entered the book to take over the art chores, and it's not overly dramatic to say that nothing would be the same for the man without fear. The cover for 159 is a fairly dramatic scene of Daredevil seemingly underwater as a shirtless man with a sword clasps Hornhead's throat. I say seemingly underwater because there's no dividing line where the water's surface should be. There's only bubbles to indicate nautical motion, and the angle showing us the bottom of the dock. The background, which is kind of the sky slash background in itself, it's a slimy green, which definitely gives the right icky vibe for the water, but doesn't show us a sky, doesn't define it for us. Once I got finished really wrapping my mind around that, I started to wonder, who is this guy that Daredevil's fighting? The shirtless blonde dude with a sword that 
because this is, this doesn't happen in the issue. And technically, I think I know who this is supposed to be, and we're going to meet them on the first page, but that doesn't translate into the story, which I guess we should be getting into. As stated before the break, this issue brings us a story entitled Marked for Murder, and it was written by Roger McKenzie with Frank Miller on pencils and Klaus Jansen on inks. You know, the way it's supposed to be. Now, the team is rounded out by Jim Novak, not, not, not to be confused with Kim Novak. Totally different thing. And Glennis Ween is on colors. Our editorial staff is Mary Jo Duffy, Al Milgram, and the editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter. And we open with a montage. You know, even Rocky had a montage. Of Daredevil fighting Bullseye. And these are playing on a video screen. These images show Daredevil and Bullseye battling it out on the set of Bowling for Bucks and a boxing ring. And the host of this event, a blonde man named Pondexter, tells the room of gathered henchmen he wants Daredevil marked for murder. The henchman's boss, the older man, Eric Slaughter, tells Pondexter that anything is possible for a price. So Pondexter offers Slaughter half a million dollars, half up front, second half upon completion, to kill Daredevil. And with their arrangement set up, Slaughter and his crew leave as Pondexter continues to obsessively watch the video footage. Let me stop there for a moment to talk about a few things. First off, there are a lot of great Daredevil images on this first page. It's a perfect quad, and this really displays Miller's talent. He's still staying pretty close to the house style at this stage. He's not taking his own approach whole cloth. What we see here is Miller kind of pulling a John Romita Sr., where he enters a book by using the same styles as Gene Cole and infused with a bit of his own layout aesthetic. The scenes depicted here actually reach back to issue 146 of Daredevil, which was one of the few appearances Bullseye has made since his debut in issue 131, which we covered in episode 9. Bullseye returned briefly for the second half of issue 141, where he was hired to kill Foggy, and then put Daredevil into a giant crossbow. No joke, a giant crossbow with Daredevil as the arrow. Issue 142 picked up on that and had Nova show up in a cameo to help Daredevil at the last moment, but the rest of the issue was a fight with Mr. Hyde. So the battle at the TV station had Bullseye calling Daredevil out so they can battle with an audience, and of course, Daredevil beat him, which is a key plot element. While we're catching up, a few bits and baubles about the state of things since we last visited Matt Foggy and Heather Glenn in continuity. Matt and Foggy are still operating the storefront law firm, but that case Matt was working on that involved the Glenn Corporation turned out to be problematic, which is massively understating it. See, Heather's dad, Mr. Glenn, was doing villainous things, yes, but it turned out that he was under the control of the Purple Man. Matt tried to help the elder Glenn, but he killed himself. And then Heather caught Matt in his daredevil duds, only to have another whammy laid on her when Matt had to break the news of her dad's death. And as much as you want to feel bad for the character, she's going to see some things coming down the pike that are far, far worse. Matt and Heather developed a romance despite the whole secret identity father killing himself fiasco, and that's kind of where we find ourselves in that front. Also, Foggy has become engaged to his longtime girlfriend, Debbie. This is a union that certainly won't encounter any awkward moments with a savage villain named Micah. Surely, surely Debbie wouldn't be swayed by a man from another time finding his way in a modern world that he doesn't understand and in turn doesn't understand him. We will never see a Crocodile Dundee scenario play out in the pages of this book. Never. Well, okay, maybe. Let's jump back into our tale, so that basically none of this is immediately necessary, but it's, it's helpful nonetheless. It was there. 
So Matt and Foggy have a day in court to discuss a matter of plot point from last issue that resulted in the death of a villain that's harder to explain than need be. But covering the story for the Daily Bugle is Ben Urich, a hard-nosed reporter who's starting to notice that there's more to Matt Murdock than meets the eye. Additionally, in attendance of the court date are two of Slaughter's thugs who are tracking Matt, and one of them is Turk. Get to know the name Turk, because he has vision. Matt successfully argues for an extension on the case, but the judge doesn't like it, and the judge, who's named Judge Coffin, will see that justice is done. Afterward, Matt and Foggy are walking down a dark alley when they are accosted at knife point by Turk and his associate, who have a message for Daredevil. Mr. Slaughter wants to see him, tonight, at midnight, Pier 42. Then the thugs take their leave of Matt and Foggy, but Matt's already gone when Foggy gets his bearings. Matt suits up and makes his way across the city as Daredevil, where he does some recon on the docks and finds a bunch of thugs, a lot of guns, pretty much exactly what he expected. A trap. So let me take this moment to talk a bit about this part of the issue. Ben Yurick makes an appearance. Not his first appearance. His first appearance was four issues earlier in issue 153, where he noticed a connection between the Man Without Fear and Heather Glenn. But here we see him again, and we should watch him over the next few episodes, as his arc is going to become pretty important. And not just to this run, but to Daredevil as a whole. I mean, he was a character in the movie that should indicate something. Somebody who isn't as important as he would appear is Judge Coffin. There's a whole bit about Coffin being angry with Matt and doing a teeth-clenching inner monologue about justice being served. It's kind of like Mackenzie had plans for Coffin that never played out in any real way and he ends up being a throwaway. But the biggest piece of this portion is Turk. Yes, Turk. One of my favorite players in Daredevil's world makes his first appearance here, at least by my estimation. Let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. There are a lot of fairly reliable sites that suggest that Turk made his first appearance in Daredevil number 69, and that is a big assumption. And it's an assumption that is, to put it kindly, narrow-minded. Here's why. Turk is an African-American character. And Daredevil number 69 deals with a group called the Thunderbolts that is pretty much a play on the Black Panthers. So essentially we have a group of militant African-Americans. And in and of itself, that's fine. I mean, it's not a great issue, but it's far from terrible. But the consensus on these reference sites say that Turk was a member of this radical group. However, reviewing that issue, and I did, not one time is the name Turk used or referenced in that issue. So I'm going to debunk that out of the gate and state that this is Turk's first time gracing the pages of Daredevil. And like Yurik, Turk is a player in the stories coming forward, and really he's, he's kind of the comic relief, which is a job he performs admirably. I don't want to tease that too much, but I will say three words. Stilt man armor. So enough on that. Um, I do want to comment a bit on Miller's take on the art. I, I want to comment, kind of continue my thought process there. He's still using some of Colin's style in his figure work, but his layouts, which I mentioned, are different. In the back matter of the omnibus is an interview with Miller where he talks about his use of rectangles. You have rectangle buildings in rectangle panels on a rectangle page. And with that, a feeling of claustrophobia. And then amid all of that is this graceful, rounded character, Daredevil, bounding through it. So we have a full page of Daredevil making his way to the docks. This is a perfect example. He's clinging to the side of a building in one panel that's as tall as the page, but thin enough to take up maybe a quarter of the width. So it's a long strip down the side. 
Then we have smaller panels of all, all, they're all the same size, of Daredevil swinging against the moon. He's running through back alleys and rooftops. It looks good, and Miller slightly changes the shadow to red ratio on the figure of Daredevil. So it feels like the lights are slightly dimmed. So Miller's not reinventing the visual style of Daredevil, not by any means. The buildings of New York have always been there, the panels have been there, but Miller studied it, thought it through, and he refines that idea. It's kind of a variation on a theme, and it works. Would I have thought that through? Would I have been able to point, pinpoint that without Miller pointing it out? I have no idea. But Miller arriving on the book didn't mean an all-stop to the style and tone that had come before. It wasn't as jarring as seeing something drawn one way, and the next month it's a totally different thing. For example, uh, Larry Stroman on X Factor going to Joe Cazada. Two totally different styles, and it's jarring. Thankfully, this is a smooth transition, and Miller takes time to make the book his own. I mean, he's the new guy here, he got here through some favors, he's not rocking the boat yet. Now, I feel like I am giving Miller a bit too much credit, but what I'm actually doing is setting up to recognize the work of Klaus Janssen. Janssen is a German-born artist who migrated to the U.S. when he was five. Janssen was a fan of Daredevil as a kid. He even talked about it in the interview. And he was, uh, he was well-respected and well-worked. He had done some fill-in inking on pretty much every DC or Marvel book by way of the Dick Giordano Studios. And Jansen was actually the inker on the book before Miller came aboard. He was actually about to leave the title, but he was convinced by Jim Shooter that Miller was the next big thing, and it was Daredevil, so he stuck it out. The reason that I bring Jansen up at this juncture is that, as the inker, he is responsible for a consistent look on the title, despite the range of artists that might come aboard. So some, and this is an unidentified amount of unfairness, of the smooth transition is on Jansen's shoulders. As time goes on, we're going to see Jansen become really this unsung hero of this run, and just an unsung hero to Daredevil as a whole. Mainly because we're going to see more and more of Jansen's real talent coming to the forefront, and I think we're going to end up realizing that this was very much his story along with Miller's. And even though it's Frank Miller's name that gets thrown around, Jansen is as important as Miller. So let me come back to the art. The thing that grabbed me on my first reading of this story, and has every other reread, is the use of Zipatone. Don't know what Zipatone is? That's alright. I guarantee that you've seen it. Zipatone is this sort of rub-off sheet of dots that help an artist give some texture to the backgrounds. It's a time-saving device that's all but obsolete in today's digital world. Instead of drawing uh, textures like cracks on a wall or sky, they apply this sheet, they rub off the pattern onto the art in the right location, and they call it a day. It's very noticeable, you know it when you see it, because it's just a bunch of sequential dots. And it's all over this issue, which kind of gives me a sentimental moment. Sure, it's dated, but it also communicates a gritty late 70s New York in a way that older readers connected to it as a kid. It's not good, it's not bad, but it is there, and it subliminally creates the right mood for my reading palette. The mood is kind of set for me with that Zipatone creating a faux shadow world. You know, it's dark, but it's not the darkness you would see in reality. It's not an inky blackness. It's a bit of a nether realm where these comic book battles are taking place well beyond our own. So we're kind of separated from the story just enough to filter it because some violence is about to go down now that Daredevil has made his long but kind of iconic trip. And by that I mean, I mean, this is several pages of Miller giving us some awesome poses that perfectly embody the movement of Daredevil and we're still in the familiar, it's just a normal issue of Daredevil, which, you know, it's kind of oddly comforting to know that. Despite their reverence for the material, despite the legacy that Miller has on Daredevil, when it comes time to sit down and read the actual content, the comics don't radiate heavenly light. There's no choir of angels. 
Gregorian monks don't walk my omnibus to my desk and chant as I read it. These are just still comic books. Good, relevant issues, but the world still retains gravity when I sit down to read them. So they're not put up high on a pedestal, they're just good comics. Now, speaking of reading comics, I think it's time to get to the last leg of this story with Daredevil deciding what to do about the trap that Slaughter has laid for him. Having pinpointed where all of Slaughter's men are positioned, Daredevil slips past them by swimming under the water and sneaking onto the boat holding the would-be assassins. Dee Dee makes quick work of many of them, but goes overboard into the water where a bald man, not a blonde man, tries choking Daredevil as they sink to the murky water. Hornhead breaks free and gets back to the surface and back to beating up Slaughter's small army with Turk in attendance. In fact, Daredevil recognizes that Turk is there and singles him out, demanding to know why Slaughter wants him dead. Just as Turk takes a solid punch to the mouth, he fires a shot from his gun, momentarily crippling Daredevil, whose ears were right next to the muzzle when the blast was made. Even with his ears ringing, throwing off his senses, Daredevil tracks down the last man standing at the dock and tries to question him. The man fires a shot from his gun, but Daredevil blocks it with his billy club, and he begins to question the goon, but a figure on a nearby boat throws a life preserver, breaking the criminal's neck, and then takes off. As the mystery man boats away, Daredevil makes out that he is using a camera, but... But why? And we leave Daredevil and end the issue with a brief epilogue where the mystery man who he met as Pondexter muses that he knew Slaughter would fail and actually counted on it. Having filmed the assault, he can actually study every move Daredevil has to combat his foe, but first, he sets his sights on the Black Widow because even the woman that Daredevil loves is a weapon in the hands of Bullseye. And now we know, we have all the pieces in place. Bullseye used Slaughter to get some training footage, but while it's a solid twist, it was telegraphed up front. However, the tactic itself, the logic of it, totally solid. But let me jump back to the where we began here with an assault on Slaughter's men. There's a mugginess in the pages, which is subliminal. A character basically mentions that there's a thick fog, and there is a presence of fog, but that's by way of the color. There's nothing obstructing us from the action. There's no fogginess, nothing like that. But the choice of colors, along with some etching effects on the background, make the lines look grainy. It's a really mood-defining piece of work and something that stood out for me from my original reading. This sequence really gives me a Will Eisner vibe, which I can safely assume was maybe the intent. Miller has made no secret to the fact that he's an avid Will Eisner fan. He did a film with him, interviewing him. And Miller even made jokes about stealing from the best and citing Eisner as an influence. And it's not that Miller is aping Eisner, because he really has very little to do with the colors beyond some basic color guides at best. But the influence shows. And the influence of this issue seems to show in Man Without Fear. We have an assault on an army, at a dock, and potentially the connection of Eric Slaughter to those early days of Matt Murdock. We learn that Slaughter was a heavy hitter but retired, and the offer that Bullseye puts out on the table is what actually draws him out of retirement. Now, there's still nothing to confirm that Miller took an early version of this character and dropped him into Man Without Fear. There's nothing to deny it either. It's a potential connection, just not confirmed. And it could be that the Slaughter we saw in Man Without Fear is this guy. There is a bit more logic than I originally thought because Slaughter was kind of a muscle for hire. He commanded an army. They came where they were paid to go. So if the Kingpin paid them at that time, makes perfect sense. Another connection is the underwater battle, which plays out in a similar way. Daredevil is in the clutches of his adversary, who he has to wrestle away from and then watch sink as he swims to the surface. It's not blow by blow, but the similarities are pretty striking, and it forms a bit of an unintentional bookend to our Man Without Fear coverage and the coverage of the Miller run in the actual comic. 
so we're actually got a nice little segue there, at least in theme. Earlier I mentioned the zipatone that stood in for darkness, uh, kind of giving that otherworldly feel, yet when the gun goes off near Daredevil's ears, we are cast into actual black darkness. The background is completely removed because Daredevil and his senses are in turmoil. It's a really nice visual cue and leads to a really cool layout on the next page. Because we exit Daredevil's headspace and join this lone sentry on the dock and we go through a pair of square panels to a wide but short panel. So it's a strip along the page. And then some very cool shots of Daredevil seeing double thanks to the gunshot in very tiny panels. And with each subsequent panel the shot gets tighter and tighter and tighter It adds to an intensity because we're reading those faster. And this issue has the distinction of containing one of my favorite comic sound effects ever. Spack. That's the sound that Daredevil's Billy Club makes when deflecting a bullet. Another thing that really stood out to me. That sound effect and that scene with him slapping it down, which is, in terms of physics, not possible, yet made realistic, it just comes back to me every time I think about Daredevil. It's a, I don't know why that stood out so much outside of the sound effect, but man, it did. But the best part of this issue, death by life preserver. That little bit of irony is so understated, but the understatement is what makes it great. There's not a lethal weapon commando pun to accentuate it. All in all, that's a fair statement about the issue as a whole. It's understated. We have some nice dominoes put into place with Bullseye ramping up his revenge scheme, and then an angry daredevil who is out for answers. That's a good start to a story. It's a nice opening salvo for an era as well, even if Miller's run as Penciler did start an issue earlier. And Miller brings a refined, darker tone to the book, predating the dark and gritty period by just a few years shy of a decade. The darkness of this issue really is a hard-boiled tone, versus gratuitous violence, over-the-top antics, nudity, that kind of thing. It's very much like a 70s or 80s police show. And Roger McKenzie seems to feel this vibe because he delivers a story that runs more in line with a good noir detective tale rather than an urban avenger of the brooding night posing with lightning bolt style. It's a very down-to-earth grit, and I dig that, and that's probably why the story resonated so much with me and why I was so excited to cover these issues based on that trade paperback reading. Speaking of which, if you want to read this story along with me, it is reprinted in Daredevil Marked for Death trade paperback, which I mentioned. Also, Marvel Superheroes Magazine number one. Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 1 Trade Paperback, The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, and of course Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. And now, it comes the time for your emails, comments, and iTunes reviews. And now, Dave presents your emails. Yes, this week I have compiled everything, it's all in one place and ready to go. Once again, I apologize for not having the emails up and ready to go last week. Our first email is from Eddie with the subject line, Thoughts on the Podcast. Eddie writes, Hey Dave, can I call you Dave? Well, I said you could, Eddie. I happened to come across your show the other day and sampled episode one. I happened to come across your show the other day and sampled episode one. Needless to say, I caught up with the current episode in a day. It's a lot of me to put up with in such a short period of time. I, I do apologize, Eddie. But Eddie continues, I'm a longtime DD fan and haven't really had anyone to discuss Hornhead's adventures with except for the few times a buddy of mine who was a diehard Punisher fan and I would get together and fight over how we thought each of our favorite characters were better than the other. Well, Eddie, and I'm editorializing here, uh, you know where I stand on that issue, but it's funny that an email later on is going to address something kind of similar along that line. Eddie continues, I recently had to part ways with my humongous comic book collection due to space, but I reminisce about those days quite often. Hearing your show brought back lots of memories, and since then, I have gotten a Marvel Digital Unlimited subscription to quench that thirst. 
Good man, I think you'll enjoy the app, I think you'll enjoy the service. But, Eddie, that was me. Back to Eddie. I had a complete run of DD from issue 131 till the second series ended in many early issues, including number two. I could never find the elusive number seven, though. Anyway, keep bringing back that flood of memories, and I'll keep looking forward to my new favorite podcast. Take care, Eddie, the chairman of the board. And Eddie, just to let you know, I do have issue number seven hanging on my wall. I'm going to consider that kind of honorarily part of your collection. It's still going to remain at my house, because I paid good money for that, but... Issue number seven for me was kind of my issue number one, kind of my prize of the collection. Mainly because, and as is well known, I'm not a big fan of the yellow costume, so those first six issues didn't really grab me, but the issue number seven with uh, Dee Dee and his red duds fighting Namor, that is, as the kids say, my jam. But I'm very glad you wrote this email. It makes me feel good to hear that people are enjoying the show and it's doing what it's supposed to, which is bringing fans a common ground of sorts, where we can all enjoy these comics, we can all be a fan, and this back and forth of the emails and whatnot is a big part of that as well. Next up is an email from Chris Stewart, the guy with four kids. Uh, it has the subject line, does Daredevil sonar work in water? He could be Dolphin Man if so. That's just the subject line, but let me address that. It wouldn't be as effective, I guess is a better way to put it, but it does work as we kind of saw. Odd question, but good timing. But Chris writes, so glad you're covering the Man Without Fear storyline. I love John Romita Jr.'s art style. I've always found his understanding of lighting and rough-edged figures builds the necessary backdrop for the gritty world Daredevil lives in. Just one man's opinion. And Chris, let me stop here and say I agree with you. I like John Romita on Daredevil. I like our Junior and Senior. However, I don't so much feel that he's the right guy for Superman. Just putting that out there. One man's opinion once again. So I'm not disagreeing with Chris by any means. I think he fits Daredevil like a glove. However... There are other characters that he's just not quite suited for. But Chris's email continues. You said you are interested in stories about how people learned about Daredevil. I have kind of a silly introduction to the Hornhead. I knew very little of Marvel Comics when I was young, five or six, and most of my exposure was my brother telling me how DC was so much better. I'm sure this was due to the fact that he watched the reruns of the 60s Batman show and the Christopher Reeve Superman films. I had been given a few X-Men comics and thought that was all Marvel Comics were about. Mutants whining about equal rights, then blowing up a building and being surprised when no one liked them. All that being said, I started to take a bigger interest in Marvel Comics due to kids at school liking Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Let me stop the email there. Spider-Man and his amazing friends is the bomb diggity. It doesn't hold up as well as I'd hoped, but darn it, I will still watch it anytime it's on my Netflix queue. Because my hand kind of reflexively pulls it up. Anyway, back to Chris's email. The very first time I saw Daredevil was his Secret Wars action figure in the Venture Toy Isle of Lawrence, Kansas. I assumed he was a bad guy and had that misunderstanding for exactly two days. I was telling my friends on the playground about this cool villain who dresses like a devil. One older kid heard my confusion and explained that I didn't know what I was talking about in front of my buddies. It really embarrassed me to be corrected in that way. I shut my mouth and after school went to the store to read the package and prove him wrong. If I would have initially looked at the back of the package at all, it spells out that he is a hero and even shows him fighting against Dr. Doom. I somehow knew he was a bad guy at that age. Now oh, come on, Chris. We all know Dr. Doom's a bad guy. He screams villain. His name is Doom, dude. That's inherent. That's in our flight or flight. So good on you for recognizing that. That means your instincts are in well-oiled working order. Anyway, Chris continues, So instead of returning to the playground the next day, victorious with my proof that a man dressed like a devil had to be evil, I ate some crow and humble pie all by myself. At least I hadn't tried to argue my case the day before and lose more face. I talked my mom into taking me to a comic book store and I bought Daredevil number 183. 
I think because the cover shows Dee Dee being shot in the stomach by the Punisher and I wanted to see how he could survive. This book was my introduction to the Punisher and I liked him more than Matt Murdock. That hurts a little, Chris, but we're cool. If my mother would have known she just purchased a book with drug use, suicide, murder, and the line, Remember my face, it's the last thing you're ever going to see and I want you to carry the memory of it straight to hell. She would have crapped herself. So in a way, Daredevil led me to the Punisher, which led me to collecting comics at all. And that was Chris, the guy with four kids. And I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit. I've known Chris for many, many years. Chris was the best man at my wedding. However, until this email, I never heard this story. So this was a really good email. I appreciate that. That opens my eyes a little bit. I appreciate that a lot, Chris. The next email is from Edward, who wrote the blog post I mentioned uh, two episodes back about Daredevil's origin. Uh, he simply writes a word of thanks. Thanks for the acknowledgement. It makes a man feel good. Salute, Edward. And Edward, I'm going to throw that right back at you. I appreciate you devoting a blog post and putting a lot of thought into what you crafted there. And please never be embarrassed by what you write. This email zone is a friendly place. So you're never going to have any issues on this show. I will address one thing. You wrote an email prior to the blog post that spoke about the dichotomy of Batman and Daredevil and how they approach their secret identities. I didn't read that on air as per your request. The reason I didn't was I did not want to paraphrase it for fear of misrepresenting what you're saying. I wanted to let you know there was no disrespect, and I really do appreciate the time and thought you put into your blog post and the emails. So please do not be a stranger. Please feel free to email anytime. After all, there's nothing you can do that can be as ridiculous as some of the things that come out of my mouth, even if they don't make it into the final cut after editing. So next up is an email from W. Blaine Dowler, subject, More Feedback. And Blaine writes, Hi Dave, love the coverage of Man Without Fear. There is something that is nagging me about the way issue 5 was written, though. If the only villain to hear the name Daredevil dies seconds later, how does the name work its way through the underworld as described in the following captions? Were there witnesses the readers don't know about? Did Mickey tell everyone she knew but leave out the part where he's Matt Murdock? That doesn't quite add up. Please tell me if I missed something. Speaking of things I might have missed, I know this was intended as a TV pilot but was turned into comic form. Did you mention if it was always meant to be a miniseries or was it conceived as a graphic novel? The abrupt endings to issues 1 through 4 make me think Miller's intention was a graphic novel and that there was never meant to be a delay between the last passage of issue N and the first page of issue N plus 1. Given how many of the scene changes happen simultaneous with page changes and the insertion of the Electra story may have also been done to hit the right number of pages for a complete issue, I wonder if Miller wanted to read it continuously but Marvel wanted a miniseries for higher profits and J.R. Jr. was caught in the middle, instructed to draw pages that would work both ways. It would explain much of the unusual formatting. That's it for me this week, Blaine. Blaine, I did address this, but it was in chunks. I don't think I ever put a cohesive line of thought to this. It was conceived as a graphic novel. Well, initially the TV pilot, but that was the impetus for a graphic novel. It was intended to be a graphic novel for quite a bit. Given the context of the story, Mar Miller actually voluntarily added more pages. Now, the additional pages, the addendums, the Electra stuff, is what lengthened it out to a point where Marvel said, let's chop this up. We can't release it as a graphic novel. It's too long. So well into production, Marvel's the one that made the decision to go ahead and put it as a miniseries. That's why I put a lot of the blame of the awkwardness on production and on editorial. As far as the name Daredevil floating through the underworld, that's a really good point. I mean, I assume that some of his actions were spoken of, but the name itself? No, you didn't miss anything. It just kind of floated up. 
But you know what? It sounds cool, and sometimes you just make that leap in logic, or in my case, you just completely miss it altogether and don't think about it. Well spotted, Blaine. And you can find W. Blaine Dowler podcasting his little heart out at Bureau42, that's the numeral 42.com. Next up, another fellow podcaster, the irredeemable Shag. Shag writes an email entitled simply, Man Without Fear. And he writes, Hi Dave, another great episode. Really enjoyed your coverage of the miniseries. I haven't read it since its original publication, but some of your thoughts seem familiar. Weird issue breaks, great art, etc. In fact, I read Miller's original run so late in my Daredevil reading about the time Wade started his run that I don't feel she's deeply connected with Daredevil. Don't get me wrong, I understand her importance, I'm just not emotionally invested in her relationship with Matt. Therefore, the Elektra parts in this miniseries felt like a needless distraction to me, but you helped provide a frame of the relevance. Also, your mention of David Mack's era caught me by surprise. I found those issues painfully boring, I dug the overall story, but the pacing was brutally dull. Whenever Mac had issues in that run, it was a disappointment for me. With that said, the Man Without Fear mini was wonderful. J.R.J.R. was my first Daredevil artist, and I read Born Again very early in my DD reading, so this felt like coming home. As usual, your coverage of the subtext and symbolism was insightful and appreciated. Keep up the great work, the irredeemable Shag. On top of pimping this show out left and right, which I highly appreciate Shag, he, as I mentioned, made a list of places where you can find him, such as the Fire and Water podcast. The Who's Who podcast, part of the Fire and Water family. And FirestormFan.com. Let's not forget Who True Freaks on the Two True Freaks Network, and I dare you to say that three times fast. As well as Hero Points, which is a role-playing podcast, also on the Fire and Water podcast family of shows. And all around many, many social networks. And Shag, let me address first. How did you not read the Frank Miller run till 2011? That's pretty impressive for somebody who, I mean, I know you've read it for years, but... To not look back? It's well representative. That's, it's just surprise, not judgment. Surprise. But I can see where that would water down the context for you. See, I read some, not all, but chunks of it prior to that. So I understood Electra was the dead girlfriend from the past who meant a lot to him. And then I oddly read Electra Lives Again slightly before really jumping into Daredevil full-time. That one kind of hammered home how Matt felt about her, about the whole scenario we're going to see play out. I can't comment too deeply on that for obvious reasons, but my frame of reference was a little bit different. But I kind of see how yours was influenced. And of course I mentioned my beef with Elektra, that she's meant for a single purpose. She was created for a single purpose, and her creator backs me up on that. As for David Mack... I won't disagree that the pacing was a little bit off. However, the art was so innovative to me. I loved Echo. I thought she was just one of the coolest characters. Have I revisited that in the last few years? I have not. But at the time, you know, it's coming out on stands. This was the hot book. And it was something that I hadn't seen from Daredevil for, I don't know, I wouldn't say a long time. I think it made me think of Joe Jusco. But I thought the, the way the book was presented was so cool and so different that it really brought me in. Eventually, maybe I'll pull those issues and see if they do stand the test of time. I'm kind of afraid to. But, you know, I've still got several years of this podcast, so I'm sure I'll hit on that at some point. But I'm really glad to hear that you are in- continuing to enjoy the show. I, it does. I, I fear really letting the audience down if I just let out a completely crappy episode. Yes, sometimes the content just doesn't sing in the same way, but I do fear just doing a very subpar show and just you know, running it into the ground. That's one of my biggest fears. So that's something I'm adamantly avoiding. But I genuinely appreciate your support, Shag. I really do. I appreciate your writing in and 
appreciate the iTunes review we're going to get to in just a moment. But before we go to the iTunes review, we have one comment off of Episode 5, The Star-Spangled Avenger, which was the Captain America episode, from an author who identifies themselves as Captain Marvel. Now, I'm kind of confused. Is that the Fawcett Captain Marvel Shazam? Or is that the Marvel? Either way, that's a string of awesome that you just can't beat. But Cap writes, Christine from the website The Other Murdoch Papers made me aware of this website. I saw Captain America and decided that that podcast was the one I wanted to listen to as the first. I hope I will one day get that issue because this is one of plenty of comics between 1941 and 2001 where Steve Rogers is the secret identity of Captain America. You mentioned Steve Rogers' appearance in the Wade Rivera run. Although I utterly loathe that since 2002, Steve Rogers is nothing more than an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., the few pages of Daredevil 2 where Steve Rogers and Daredevil confront each other has a vibe to me that felt like the character portrayed during the period 1941 to 2001. Mark Wade completely surprised and impressed me with those pages. Thanks for doing podcasts about the comic book series and a character Daredevil. You're quite welcome, Cap. And I will agree that, you know, Captain America's been on uh, kind of an up and down slope. Yeah, the Brubaker run is good reading, but is it Captain America? And the thing is, Captain America has a lot of different faces as a character. I mean, really, if you look at his Golden Age stuff, he was into the macabre. He was fighting monsters. And then you have sort of the 2001 where he became an anti-terrorist character and, well, no secret identity, which changed the paradigm a bit. And I will say, yeah, he's maybe a bit too into S.H.I.E.L.D. He's too much a part of it. And that bothers me just a bit. But I appreciate your email. And I did want to address something that you mentioned, Christine, from the other Murdoch papers, which there's a link on DaredevilPodcast.com. You can also just simply go directly to the other Papers.com. If you want a comprehensive blog about Daredevil, exploring different aspects of him in ways that you would not expect, but work marvelously, there is no other place to look. If anybody asks me where to go for Daredevil information, there are two sites. There's manwithoutfear.com, which has indexed a lot of stuff. There's the other MurdochPapers.com. Christine, in a, in a move that made me blush, wrote uh, kind of a catch-up sort of post about the news. There's a survey that she did. A lot of things that have been going since she had been a little bit busy. Just trying to keep things up to date. Uh, she wrote a blurb about this show. Which flattered me to no end. To see somebody I respect, in, especially in relation to the character that I cover, mention something about the show meant... Uh, I was just kind of staggered. I don't know exactly what it meant, but I was staggered by it. She wrote, I also want to let you know about a relatively new Daredevil podcast that I really like. Even though I haven't listened to all the episodes just yet, it's professionally done and I give two big thumbs up, even though it makes my own podcast sound extremely flaky by comparison. Okay, first thing, if, it, if this show ends up sounding professional, I've done my editing job well, which means I've taken out all of my cursing, my mispronunciation, so on and so forth. And it's a miracle in some weeks. Second, the other Murdoch Papers podcast, in which Christine really does cover a lot of different things. I'm pretty simple, sticking to the comics because that's where I'm comfortable Christine had, like, Daredeva on, who's a woman who is a huge Daredevil fan and does a lot of art with textiles, which is, it's fabulous. I mean, really is. Really enjoyed it. But I, I that was an inspiration for this show. I wanted to kind of join in, bringing more Daredevil love to the podcast realm. So I would never, ever call it flaky. I really enjoyed it. We just It's different from what I do here. That doesn't make one better than the other. And hopefully we see more episodes of that coming down the pike. But I wanted to thank Christine a lot. I really did appreciate that. Gave me a lot of validation. 
So Christine and Shag have been really big supporters, and that just humbles me in a way that I don't know how to express. So I'm going to segue to the iTunes reviews. Uh, we have three this time around, since the last time we checked in. The first one is from January 28th, is from Jeffrey Gibson. It's a five-star review, as are all of these, which makes me feel, well, darn good to get up in the morning sometimes, I'll be honest with you. But the iTunes review is simply entitled, Love It. Jeffrey writes, I actually look forward to my Monday morning commute. It's the first podcast I listen to each week. Dave does a fantastic job looking at things in ways I had not thought of before. Daredevil is my favorite character, but this podcast is great for anyone who wants to get to know Matt better. And that was from Jeffrey Gibson. Highly appreciate that. Hopefully, if you're commuting now, I wish you a safe journey, sir. Next up is a review from the Bobby Krogan from January 29th to 2014, entitled A Podcast Without Fear. And Bobby writes, Dave has really done his homework on Daredevil. His love of the character shines through in every episode. I love the non-linear format of the show and have found every episode entertaining and educational. Well done, sir. And I thank you, sir. It warms my little heart. Makes me blush, I'll be honest with you. Not sure how to take compliments, but, you know, I do the best I can. And finally, we have a five-star review from the irredeemable Shag himself, entitled Exceptional Daredevil Podcast. Shag writes, such a great podcast. The format of the show allows Dave to cover the best issues and ignore the duds. I enjoy his tight, humorous recaps and insightful commentary. Dave's exceptional at bringing out the subtext and symbolism in the stories that the average fan probably misses. Highly recommend this podcast. The reason that makes me blush is Shag does Fire and Water podcast. One of my favorite podcasts, my first listen, if you will. And there are really two that pop up. One is Hey Kids Comics with Andrew Leyland and his son Michael. Love the father and son vibe. Love it every week. The other is Fire and Water, which every Sunday after I posted this, a little bit later in the day I see that coming down, my week begins. So very much appreciate that, Shag. You are really warming my heart. So before I get too sappy, just want to remind you that, as always, you can send emails sharing your thoughts to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or use the handy contact form at the show site, daredevilpodcast.com. And, of course, please leave a review on iTunes. They are very, very appreciated. But, folks, that puts a fork in another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next time, Bullseye gets his hands on the Black Widow to set another much deadlier trap as the real game begins in Daredevil number 160. Until then, I am J. David Weeder, reminding you that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger is near. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics. 
and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Fight for